Blog Talk Radio. Danny, I just figured out that if I switch to Metro PCS, I get two Samsung Galaxy phones free. Cool, Dad. And I could be a super dad with two free Samsung Galaxy phones and call myself Double Galaxy Man. Or you could give the second phone to your sidekick. Yeah, I guess I could do that. That's right. Two free Samsung Galaxy On5 smartphones are all yours when you switch to Metro PCS. Metro PCS. Wireless figured out. Coverage not available in some areas. Sales tax not included in phone price. Exclude numbers on the T-Mobile network. See store for details and terms and conditions. Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives. And Well, I am so happy to welcome genealogist Angela Walton-Raji for a conversation on the challenges and opportunities for conducting African-American genealogy. Well, I have had numerous conversations with Angela, and several months ago suggested maybe we should just share our conversation on open mic. So I hope you don't mind joining in because Angela and I talk all the time. Most of our calls, I think it would be really nice if we had others who would listen to some of the issues that we talk about. Well, Angela Walton-Raji is known nationally for her research and work on Oklahoma Native American records. Her book, Black Indian Genealogy Research, African Americans Among the Five Civilized Tribes, is the only book of its kind focusing on the unique record sets pertaining to the Oklahoma freedmen. A founding member of the well-known Afrogenius.com website, Angela is also a genealogist specializing in information for beginners by daily and weekly online genealogy chats on AfroGenius.com. She also serves as the host of a weekly genealogy podcast, and you will always hear me say, tune in every Friday for the African Roots Podcast, and a number of instructional videos, and has been used in recent years as a genealogical consultant on several video documentaries. So let me give a warm welcome to Angela Walton-Rogers. Hello, Angela. Well, hello, Bernice. Thank you for that very warm introduction. 
Well, I am so happy to have you tonight, Angela. You know we talk a lot. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> well, Angela, let's just get, kind of get people to understand who you are. Now, how did you get started in genealogy? Oh, gosh. Well, you know, I've been asked that question off and on, and people have asked me, well, how did you pick genealogy? And my response is really that genealogy picked me. I was asking a question uh, of my grandmother when I was a child. Who's that on the wall? Who's that? Where did they come from? Where did they live? And so I was asking, I was actually performing oral history when I didn't even know what it was. And I guess um, having grown up in a, in a city that's well known for its history, I grew up in Fort Smith, Arkansas, right on the Arkansas-Oklahoma border, and I have roots in both states. My mom is from Arkansas, my dad's from Oklahoma, and Fort Smith is one of those cities like Dodge City, Kansas. You know, everybody knows it's, it's Wild West history. And even if you've never heard of Fort Smith, you may have heard of Judge Parker, the Hanging Judge, if you saw True Written, and on and on. Um, but this, the the area is rich in history. So I grew up hearing a lot of history. And then my dad would always remind us every time we'd cross the bridge, go to Oklahoma. Well, you know, Nana, you know, she's from the Choctaw Nation. And, of course, you see this big sign, you know, you're entering the Choctaw Nation. And so that sense of history was there. My mom came from Little Rock, where she was born and raised, but her family from Mississippi. So she talked about that, and she talked about the fact that her grandmother, Harriet, would talk about the fact, yes, we were slaves of Tandy Young in Ripley, Mississippi. And so these are names that I, I grew up hearing. Genealogy chose me, and when I got old enough to figure out that I could actually put some of that information in some sort of order, then I guess I became a genealogist, uh, but it's one of those things that I was naturally curious, so well, that helped a lot. It's wonderful that you had the oral history because you had all, almost the kind of the begin, the foundation for genealogy just by talking and asking those questions at home, which is wonderful. Right. Well, did you receive any formal training in genealogical research? Well, only, uh, of course, years and years later, and I had first begun, um, actually, I guess, practicing, if one can use that word, genealogy to some degree. Um, I guess it was 1975 or 76, and that was probably right around that time. And I began to just talk to my grandmother, and I interviewed her. She, you know, lived until 1978. This is my grandmother, uh, and I only wish I had... I had the wherewithal to have interviewed interviewed my great-grandmother, whom I knew, but, you know, I was really small. I was nine when she passed away. But in 1975, 76, I started talking to my grandmother, and I wrote out the interview and typed it up. And um, at that point, I started to try to construct family trees. I was an avid reader, and I loved to read novels that were big family sagas, multi-generational family sagas. So, you know, when you pull out novels like that and you see this big family chart in the front, and I was always impressed with that. So um, this is, you know, really pre-genealogy, uh, even knowing what the word was, but trying to construct that on my own family. Then fast forward um, about 15 years later, um, late 80s, early 90s, when I really joined uh, the Afro-American Historical and Genealogical Society, 
and became a member and then eventually moved here to the Washington, Baltimore area and had greater access to the National Archives and started to research regularly. Uh, I took a formal class, uh, the National Institute of uh, Genealogy Research at the National Archives in 1995. Uh, I'm an alumna of that particular class. And, of course, any opportunity that I have to sign up for a class, workshop, session, um, institute, I do. And so I'll say that probably my formal training in terms of an organized institute was 1995, but I was really taking classes steadily from 1990 onward. Anytime there was a lecture or class, I was, I was doing that. And it's ongoing. I'm still learning. And I'm still signing up for classes, and I'm still now, of course, we have a format that didn't exist 15 years ago. It didn't exist 10 years ago. And for many of us, it didn't exist three years ago. I go to webinars now. And so uh, it's ongoing. It's something that does continue. Yes, so you actually have seen a a kind of evolution in in genealogy training. um, Oh, absolutely. The methods of delivery have definitely changed. Which is great because as it changes, it becomes more convenient for the learner. And um, so the dynamic or the changing aspect of it is wonderful. And um, we just have to be willing, we, the learners, and, and the members of the community, the, the citizens of the genealogy community, have to be willing to, to grow with that change too. But it's, it's great. It's been a learning experience. Well, let's just ex- explore uh, what you would say are the differences and similarities in conducting research for individuals of African descent versus individuals of European, Asian, and Native American descent? Wow, that's a heavy question. Um, Well, of course, we have a unique history. And, of course, every culture does have its unique history. Obviously, Obviously, those who are children of immigrants will use a certain record set that I may never use, um, although, yes, my ancestors also came on ships, although they were cargo and not passengers. But um, uh, there are some other unique aspects of the African-American research experience, particularly because as we research our family, many of us know we're going to get to an impasse. Sometimes the impasse is because we don't know where to go when we're reaching that wall of 1870 and are not sure where to go because we know that the family was enslaved. Where do we go to find uh, more about the family? And there are methods. There are places to go. Once, if we are able to, if we don't have the benefit of knowing who the slaveholder was through oral history, then there's the exercise of, of trying to identify the last known slaveholder. Why? Because one must know who the last slaveholder was to be able to continue the research. And that means suddenly, as you're seeking your family line, you've got to suddenly be immersed in someone else's family line. Well, I won't say totally unrelated to you because in many cases the slaveholder was related, but that's a separate issue. But one must explore the slaveholder's history and family to be able to trace your own family. That is unique. That is something that no other other ethnic group has to do to find their bloodline immersed 
in the household as uh, sometimes this inventory is property within another family's estate or, or multiple families because many times slaves changed hands. So that is a particular challenge. There are other challenges as well, even if one knows, well, gee, my family, uh, I've traced them to 1830. They were free people. Well, the next question is for that person whose ancestors were African-American but not enslaved, well, how did they obtain their freedom? Were they manumitted? Is there a record of that? Um, yes, you have found them in census records, federal records, or on tax lists, or on free Negro registers, or on whatever sources, resources that you have. But again, where, again, do you find the beginning of their freedom story as well? So it is unique. Obviously, as I said, people of European ancestry who were, I'll say, when I say late immigrants, I mean mid to late 19th century immigrants and onward into the 20th century. Obviously, they're going to be using different types of records than one who may have ancestors that came from the 13 original colonies. They will have colonial records and records that are going to be based within those specific states of those 13 colonies. But, uh, and, and the colonial era, there are individuals who clearly specialize in colonial era records. Native American, just as unique. Um, there was no true pattern of enumerating Native American people on a standard regular basis. I'm not saying that they were not recorded because I have, you know, I work with a lot of Native American records that certainly predate the 20th century. But it was not until 1890, and of course that makes it a double tragedy because of the loss of the 1890 census, but 1890 was the very first year that it was mandatory to actually enumerate all Native people in the federal census. Now, that does not mean that they were not on the Dawes Rolls or on certain types of, of other special um, uh, Indian schedules uh, in certain communities, uh, but it was not widespread, it was not uniform, and it was not something that was just done. So obviously those who have Native ancestry have some unique challenges that are there too, but they can still follow their one line within their one line. We are following our line immersed in another person's line and sometimes in the line of a person of another race. So that does make our journey a unique one. It, it certainly does. And when you say that, you know, what, what I start thinking in my mind, well, what record groups should I familiarize myself with? Well, the standard record groups, obviously, yes, the vital records, those birth, death, marriage. I always say don't forget divorce as well. But the vital records, of course, the census records, yes, of course, becoming um, familiar with the assets or, or the resources within one's geographic um, ancestral community is critical. Um, in some states, there were state censuses, even though they were not necessarily done on a regular basis and they don't all agree in terms of what year they were conducted. You may find something was conducted in the state of Alabama in the years between the Civil War and the 1870 census, and you may find them in, in different years in the state of Kansas. And so 
wherever your family is from, you must acquaint yourself with what is unique. There's a unique set of records in the state of Mississippi, so Mississippi researchers need to be aware of the children's census records that are, um, that are conducted in um, certain communities, and this is something that can be a challenge as well. We are a very diverse people, and you cannot peg African Americans in one little, little neat little shape and say, aha, here's the key to African American research, because we're very, very diverse. The history and the resources and the interpretation of records that come out of the low country of South Carolina, Georgia, and the northeast corner of Florida, what we know as the low country, their history and culture are so unique and quite different from the records of people who come out of the Creole de Couleur of Louisiana, their history and culture and even the, the resources one might use are totally different from resources that I use almost every day when I'm researching the records from Indian Territory pertaining to the 14,000 freedmen of the five civilized tribes. Again, quite different from the records that you, I know, being a descendant of a homesteader, will find that there's a record that is unique from those who became landholders and settlers on the Great Plains, those who became exodusters. Each one of those communities, those who had historic ties to Black Gotham, I'm remembering your guest, uh, Dr. Peterson, and they have a rich history. So our histories are so unique, and we have to respect that diversity. We have to celebrate that diversity as well, because there is no single way one can categorize the African American historical experience. Our records are different. Yes, youth standard records, of course, the census, of course, those those uh, vital records. But find out what's unique in your territory. If there were a certain amount of narratives that were taken, even during the era of the WPA, that came specifically in your corner of the world, they become familiar familiar with it. Obviously, a person from another state may not have that as a requirement for his or her research. So we have to really keep our antenna up and, and be aware of so many things. But it's also a beautiful experience, especially if you have the um, opportunity to be a multi-state researcher such as I am. I have Arkansas, Oklahoma, Mississippi, and Tennessee. And then we have subset populations that are not necessarily defined by geography. We have U.S. colored troops, uh, many of whom, of course, they were traveling across multiple states in a, as the country was in a state of war, but they were a subset and became a specific and are a specific class to research. I have ancestors who were both uh, Civil War Union soldiers, but I have some who are also contraband. And there's something, this is, and that's an area that's just being opened in terms of, of getting into the psyche of those men, women, and children who freed themselves and who, who were not waiting for the word to come. They heard the rumor that freedom was coming if they could just get to Fort Monroe or get to the Union line, wherever that line was. So our, our experience in our history is very, very rich. And, um, and, of course, that's just looking at 19th century. We haven't even gotten to the 20th century yet. So right. there, there's so much. 
there's so much. Anyway. But, but then we're, we're also faced with some challenges. Well, first of all, you're saying you have to understand the geographic areas of which your ancestors lived, which means you also have mm-hmm. to understand the history. But what about your ancestors right. who had the SSL? Yeah, but we have the secrets. Uh, we have the secrets, and sometimes it's our task to to go and find those secrets, or you find out that, gee, in fact, I've occasionally bumped into a secret, and um, I know that there was a secret on my great-grandmother's side. She never, and we always thought she would be a great person. This is a person who died in 1961. She was 98 years old. She was born in the middle of the Civil War in the Choctaw Nation. She she saw the outlaws. She saw the marshals. She saw the black marshals. She saw Bass Reeves. She saw these individuals. She saw Judge Parker. And we always wanted her to, hey, why don't you let the newspaper come and interview you? They're always looking to interview people who remember the pioneer days. She was adamant. No, 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 absolutely not. And with such such strength in her voice, and this is a gentle-spoken, soft-spoken woman, well, I found out later why. And uh, because her uncle was an outlaw who who met his fate uh, with the hanging judge. And um, he he wasn't hung for you know chewing gum in church. He he was he was with a little outlaw gang, and there was some election going on in the Choctaw Nation. And he was with this gang of other guys who didn't like the one guy, and they were for the other guy. And so it's something, but it was a trauma. And when I read the tragedy of how they captured this guy, who was the outlaw, who was my great grandmother's uncle, her mother's brother. And I realized, oh, wait a minute, this is not just, oh, a spectacular story about some outlaw in the Wild West. This is someone that she knew. But when I read the case of how they captured him and they got to the cabin and there were four women in the house and they started to smoke them out and they put little brush fires on the corner of the cabin. And, of course, the women were terrified and thought they were going to be burned alive. And I realized, oh, my God, she was one of the females in the house. And then I realized, oh, my gosh, that was one of the family secrets. Well, it's very interesting. And, of course, you know, many of us have secrets. Um, you know, you've heard me talk about Uncle Cephas, that, but that's a fabulous uh, story. The scandals, there are the lies. And we have a certain responsibility to determine how we are going to respond to some of the things. When you uncover maybe something that was a scandal. Um, One of the things that I think should be a a principle that we live by is do no harm. Um, Do not hurt someone who's still living who might, as I said, my great-grandmother, you know, hey, you know, why don't you get the newspapers to interview you? She went through the trauma of being in the cabin when they were smoking out her uncle, and then she saw him, you know, um, you know, when he was executed. And so the trauma of that, she carried that with her. She died in 1961. He was executed in 1885. She was 98 years old and carried that, that trauma, which, of course, we do carry traumas with us that we go through in life. But we do no harm as we do research. So, you know, what do you do with them? Sometimes the scandals can be interesting as long as the exposure doesn't hurt anyone. Um, and, of course, you find the lies. Oh, Grandma always said this, but you found out, oh, wait a minute. Well, she was married twice before. You know, you find these things. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we still want to hurt no one as yes. we do. 
you know. You know, what happens, and, and what can you, you actually say? Let's say you're a, a researcher, and um, an, a person of African descent has just recently discovered an enslaved ancestor. What emotions have you and others, you know, witnessed when confronted with this information? And I'm opening this up to the listeners. If any of you have found your ancestors enslaved, I mean, how is there a reaction? Should there be a reaction? Or the person who's delivering the information, how should they uh, respond? But, Angela, what, what would you say to somebody? It's an interesting question because I guess, well, I think it depends. For a beginning researcher, the beginner, and oftentimes the person who is a beginner is a person who is also not really quite that familiar with the whole family story, so maybe they're just getting little bits and pieces for the first time. They're conducting that oral history. Uh, On the other hand, they may know that, yeah, there's some slaves back there because, yeah, we know Back in the day, we were enslaved people, but um, so there may not be complete surprise to find them, but you use the word emotion, and I guess in particular, there is an emotion that one does go through, and I think that as the researcher, if you're researching perhaps for someone, especially if they've, they've never encountered a slave record, and I can give you even one uh, an example. For, let's before before we even get to the record, I took a close friend who was very intrigued that I did genealogy, and I had to go to the National Archives to do something. She said, "Oh, please, may I go with you?" And I said, "Sure." And um, so, you know, of course, they've made a lot of cosmetic changes in in the National Archives. Everything's on the first floor. Some of the rooms are smaller, but the cabinets are still there. And, you know, when you pull out the metal cabinet to pull what you want. And she had done no research. But, of course, she was in awe. Oh, my God, you find your ancestors here? And we stood, and I had to, I was looking for something from Arkansas Freedmen's Bureau Records. I said, oh, yeah, I want to pull something from the field office uh, from Fort Smith. I want to pull up some records um, that I just need to copy. And she stopped. She was just frozen. And and. I was like, what's the matter? And she was looking up at the sign, and you know the sign that I'm referring to because you go to the archives frequently. Yes. And it's just this Freedmen's Bureau, okay, records of the Freedmen's Bureau. And she looked at it, and then she saw these cabinets full of data, and she started tearing. And I said, are you okay? And she said, yes. And she just, I just need a moment. Her eyes just started flooding with tears. She, this is the first time she's walking into this, this beautiful government building and she sees something that is making an official reference to our people as a whole who were freed from bondage. And seeing that sign before she had, put, she had even opened a box of microfilm moved her soul deeply. And it's something that because those of us have been doing it for a long time, we forget. We're like, oh, give me that microfilm, let me pop it up, and we just get, get to it. Right. But it's almost like that, you're saying that people become desensitized because they've seen it so much. Is that is that what's going so much. on? But, you know, and I, have, I, think, I have someone online. Uh, you know, I, I opened the, 
the the line for anyone who wanted to call in. And so I do have a, a someone uh, from area code five zero four. Five zero four, you're live on Block Talk Radio. Good evening, Bernice. Good evening. Um, Angela, this is Stephanie, um, and I'm calling from New Orleans. I. Oh, hello, hello, Stephanie. I on Friday. Um, was in my family's home parish, which is St. Helena, and going through succession records. Um, I know my surnames very well, and so I knew who my great-great-great-grandfather was through um, a death certificate and um, came upon the, um, the, the inventory of an estate for a William mm-hmm. Self who died in 1843. And I kept mm-hmm. going through the papers. Many of them were crumbling in my hand because they're not maintaining the records. But the first oh, wow. record that I came to that um, was complete um, contained the inventory of his estate, and in it, it named the slave that he had. Wow. My great 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 grandfather was named in that, as well as his brother. And um, I've been doing this for a long, long time. And wow, the, I don't know if you could hear the shaking in my voice, but the emotion that goes along with it. it, it oh yeah. I cry. Oh. We pray. Oh my. And um, I'm 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 still I still I I look at the records at the the copies two to you know two to three times a day, trying to save mm. but but it is what it is. So the emotions run run the gamut. I you know the tears, the happiness, the you know there's a pride in being able to come across that. Now I know where he came from. I know who owned him. So. Maybe I, I I'll be able to go back farther to the Carolinas where where they came from, but it's it's a tremendous it's a tremendous it's it's amazing. The one word I can use to describe it is amazing. Yes, it is an it's amazing. It's amazing. Yes. Yes, and it's yeah. very powerful. Well, it is um, powerful. I, and you you mentioned prayer that that you prayed. Yeah, well, we, we, we you know, um, we we prayed because, you know, that's, I, I honestly feel like that is the one thing that kept our ancestors alive, um, and and we prayed, and we, we hugged, and we, we, mm. we were there for each other, and, 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 and it was a beautiful, beautiful thing, but it was draining. I was not able to do any much more research. It kind of took the wind out of me. And I had to really, 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 I had to go off by myself to try to process some of it. And I, I don't, I still don't think I've processed it all the way. I still think I'm I'm, I'm feeling there's a, a that goes along with it. That's happy. I found the record. I'm, I've done much better. I've done a lot more than some people have. But there is a sadness that goes along with it because they place the monetary value on them, and and yeah, you know that that part really got to me. Yeah, 
Yes. Well, uh, it is. Uh, it is. You you do as you said. You go through these emotions. You did find them, which which is a happy moment. But then you had to face that reality also, that they were a property. Well, thank you so very much for sharing mm. what happened with with all of us. I also see a comment coming from the chat, and this is from Shannon. And Shannon said that he expected to locate enslaved ancestors, but when he found the original uh, estate records, he was elated because he did not expect to locate free people of color emancipated prior to slavery's end in his family. And so that was his moment uh, that moved him. And, and again, you're going to find people finding their ancestors in two different places. One, they expect to find them enslaved, right, Angela? And then they find the other. That's right. That is correct. That yes. is so correct. Well, Angela, we're going and to take a quick break, but come back and continue this discussion. Danny, I just figured out that if I switch to Metro PCS, I get two Samsung Galaxy phones free. Cool, Dad. And I could be a super dad with two free Samsung Galaxy phones and call myself Double Galaxy Man. Or you could give the second phone to your sidekick. Yeah, I guess I could do that. That's right. Two free Samsung Galaxy On5 smartphones are all yours when you switch to Metro PCS. Metro PCS. Wireless. Figured out. Coverage not available in some areas. Sales tax not included in phone price. Exclude numbers on the T-Mobile network. See store for details and terms and conditions. Welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources stories, and answer your burning genealogy questions. I want you to remember that all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. I also have a special announcement tonight. study needs volunteers who are African-American, African, or Afro-Caribbean, are between the ages of 45 and 65, have a primary care physician or a community health center where they've received health care, have not smoked in the past year, live in the metropolitan Washington, D.C., or Baltimore areas. Now, the tests are free, and they include blood tests and an EKG and echocardiogram and possibly a, a heart CT scan. And participants are compensated $100 upon completion of their initial appointment. For further information, you can contact special guest Angela Walton Raji. And Angela, we just talked about just a very emotional aspect of African American research, and that's finding an ancestor enslaved in the record. So what else uh, could we say about that, Angela, before we move on to some other uh, discussions? Well, you know, one of the things that you may find um, 
is, I, and I really appreciated uh, appreciated Stephanie's call because I know Stephanie's been doing research, so she's 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 not new to it. But then here she found this record where she was now looking face to face at her ancestors at a document that was created while they were enslaved. You know, many of us think, um, um, oh, yes, well, you know, back in the day we were slaves and we don't have to confront it. But when you find the record that's naming them while they were still in bondage, it's sobering. Um, And sometimes the names that you hear, they're just faraway names that don't have any meaning until you really see something that makes it tangible and real. And, I can recall going to the library once uh, when my mom uh, was accompanying me once on one of my just just jaunts to the local library in my hometown. And um, she always knew the name of the person who was a slaveholder. She always heard it from her own grandmother. And we were there, and she was in a section of books on Mississippi. And she pulled out something on Mississippi, and it made a reference to William Tandy Young of Ripley, Mississippi. She was like, oh, my goodness. And I was like, are you okay? What's going on, Ma? And she was like, look at this, look at this. And here was a reference to the slaveholder. And, again, it 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 startled her because it wasn't just something that her grandmother said. Now here's a reference to this man who was, you know, and, and it, was, it was sobering. And she was like, oh, my God. You know, oh, goodness. This was, yeah, he was a real guy. And he wasn't someone who's disappeared with time. No, he has a legacy that's still there. And it, it's very sobering. So we have to realize how seriously uh, things are and how seriously we must take our work because yeah. we may be the one who's selected to do it, but we're doing very serious work and very important work. That's and right. um, it's just saying, something that we, we the, need we to are, We are the chosen, that's for certain. See. Quite true, quite true, quite true. Yes. Well, there's a question coming out of the chat, and it's uh, a question relating to, and if you could say a little bit about individuals who, uh, let's say the migration from South Carolina to Arkansas, and what what could you say about that? Do you do you know anything about the migration or about the the large number of African Americans in? in Arkansas and where perhaps individuals might want to start searching for more information on their ancestors? A little bit, and, you know, it's really interesting because, you know, we have the rules that we, we sort of carry in our head. You know, do the oral history, research your family in 1870, find the slaveholder, and then uh, then follow the slaveholder's family and as far back as you can go, et cetera. We have those rules in our head. But, there are some other things that happened, and the fact that you're mentioning ancestors found in Arkansas, but born in South Carolina, number one, they had to get there. There is some movement that took place. There is a transportation method. There is something that has to be as part of the story that has to be told because we must realize that our task at all times is to tell the story, even though we have multiple stories to tell. But um, there's a transportation story. How was this made? Mm-hmm. Why was this made? Was yeah. this migration? And how was this done? Was this done before co- train travel was common? Then more than likely there was a great migration, a big wagon train. And slaves were on those wagon trains. But 
there's some other stories, and this is why it's important that we use all of the record sets that we know that are there when we get to a certain period in time. And I can give you an example. A person who's researching, and they're following the rules. They're researching the family. They got them to 1870, and they see that family. Uh, uh, oh, here's my family. They're down on the Delta. Oh, they're from South Carolina. And another researcher says, yes, I have people from the Delta, too. And, oh, I see they were from Virginia. Oh, gosh, now how can I, how can I find this man who was a slaveholder who brought them there? We cannot make assumptions because sometimes we assume that, and, and a perfect example uh, someone sees, oh, great-great-grandpa was born in Virginia, so who's the slaveholder? And they'll spend months, maybe weeks, years looking for a slaveholder in that county who was born in Virginia. And they may find a gentleman born or family born in Virginia and assume those are the slaveholding families. Mm-hmm. But had they never, ever looked at Record Group 105, wonderful resource, we know it as the Freedmen's Bureau, yes. they would have missed a transportation record. And the transportation record that I'm speaking about would be the record where individuals in 1867, after the war, were being given labor contracts from Alexandria, Virginia, to go and work in Arkansas, and some of them stayed. And the family history doesn't talk about the Virginia years. The family says, oh, I know everybody's from Helena, Arkansas. Sure, that's where we're from, and I guess the slave master brought them there. No, they came there as free people. And sometimes you find those transportation records embedded in a record set listing by name. In fact, thanks to fellow researcher, thank you, Selma. I'm calling you out. She is there in the chat room. But Selma Stewart of Hampton researching Virginia records found this transportation record listing, oh, God, several hundred individuals who had a contract to go and work in Arkansas. Now, a person who descends from those slaves still living in Arkansas and saying, oh, yeah, 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 I found the family, still can't find that slave master. Well, the slave master was probably from Alexandria from Fairfax County. So these are sometimes things we don't know. Now, granted, yes, there were cases where people were brought to another state while still enslaved. And um, and you may find that to be the case, and one certainly should look for a pattern. If you see a large geographic pattern of a large number of, of African Americans free in 1870 with South Carolina roots and you also see a sizable community of whites who have South Carolina roots also, you can certainly assume that there was a migration. There was probably uh, a wagon train that left Edgefield or 96 or Abbeville or whatever those districts were in South Carolina. The task at hand now is to find, well, what precipitated that migration? And who was part of that, and one has to now go and pull up those resources within that state of origin to find out, okay, well, let's research these individuals who, yes, brought their enslaved people with them. And the the, the exodusters, people left, you know, by the, the, the hundreds, leaving Tennessee, going to the Great Plains, going to Kansas, and, of course, the homesteaders, those who were, who were get, some were getting land where they were, 
Um, but some were also getting land in other places as well. They were going to Nebraska. They were going to the Great Plains. They were going to Iowa. They were going other places too. So you're very correct. So we have to realize our experiences certainly go beyond the confines of, you know, just, uh, okay, I gotta find them and find the plantation records, and you know, and all of us didn't come off as plantations, even though we may have been enslaved. So, so another question coming out of the chat, and and this question is, could you just address the whole issue of name changes and name variations as far as the spelling is concerned? Oh gosh, well, of course we know one of the rules: uh, spelling doesn't count, and it's quite true. And um. Um, many people have heard of the Netty Rule, and one of the things that um, uh, the Netty Rule um, addresses the fact that if you're in a situation, you find, for example, your family in, in the 1900 census, and you go back into the 1800s, and you find them in 1880, you don't see them in 1870, but they were there. You know they were there. Then one of the rules is look for them again, but do not look for the surname. Look for the family, but look, forget the surname and look line by line, painful, tedious task, but look for the family without the surname. You might be surprised who you will find. Um, and in many cases, you will find, oh, my goodness, they weren't even known by this name. I know that experience. I was looking for Amanda Young and had been looking and looking and looking. And I saw an Amanda in, in Tippa County. Oh, but no, this lady is called Barr. Hmm, okay. And I was looking for my mother's grandmother, Harriet, and her sister Violet, and a few houses away. Oh, that's Harriet and Violet. Oh, no, they weren't young. Oh, oh they got the same name that, that Amanda has. Hmm. Yeah, I'm just going, hmm. And realizing, or not realizing, rather, that I was looking at the family. The surname was Barr in 1870, and subsequently it was in 1880. By 1900, that name had evolved or had, had, had really sort of uh, disappeared, partly because the patriarch, the great-great-grandmother's second husband, had passed away. She began seeking a pension from her first husband and went back to the name of Young, which is the name that prevailed that my mother always heard, Amanda Young. She never heard Amanda Barr, but that was also her name. And now that's a tiny anecdote, not even a normal one. You'll find other anecdotes where the family truly just changed their name. Mm -hmm. And and for whatever reason. Uh, sometimes you may find them right after the Civil War living in close proximity to the individuals who enslaved them. Then you may find them a few miles or a few towns away now living on a different estate where they are no longer living on the estate of the former slaveholder, and the family name that is now the family's identity is the new surname that you see. And so certainly individuals, they were, we have to realize there was a tremendous adjustment that people had to make, also to how they perceived themselves. Add to that naming patterns in terms of given names, mm -hmm. and that can be a challenge, um, not just in terms, <clears throat> pardon me, of how individuals uh, refer to themselves, but also how their names were recorded. 
Amanda was written often as Mandy. You know, we have those we have those uh, <clears throat> those nicknames that we have to learn. Oh yes, we do have the nicknames. <laughs> we have and, to and learn have, the nicknames. About, and we have those family members who are really not family members. The aunties That's and the right. cousins and the and they're not really family members. <laughs> But and we but we but we still call them, you know we still call them you know Uncle Henry yes. and you'd better not call Uncle Henry anything else but Uncle Henry. And on the other hand, you have the lodger who's there. Oh, I don't know, just somebody paying rent. Are you sure they could have been a relative? So we have all of those kinds of of uh, nuances that also reflect what we do and. Also, if you read, even read some of the slave narratives, sometimes you'll see stories where individuals will talk about the fact. Well, my mother always wanted me to call Mary, but the slave mistress always wanted to call me Nettie. And if I answered to her as Nettie, then my mama would give me a spanking. And if I if I didn't answer, then I was in trouble with the slave mistress. You see a lot of names were very important because once they were free, they had control of who they were. Yes. Truly who they were. Sometimes they would test waters and changing, which they had the freedom to do that, um, how they wish to be addressed. And um, I think sometimes we forget truly how extensive bondage was. They weren't even free to claim themselves, even their names. Mm -hmm. So we have to... Just simply, yes, it's a challenge when we're trying to research it, but we have to acknowledge it when we find those differences in names and just respect the fact that they were going through that process of becoming themselves. Mm-hmm. And if that was still part of the, the removal of, of, of those bonds of enslavement. I, I mean, it's just um, it's something that we can't imagine. Uh, right. We can't imagine what they went through. Well, so. you know, when you when you think about African American research, what are some of the new frontiers African American genealogists should explore? Well, one of the things that because uh, uh, I've been doing research for quite a long time, and in the early days, even of the internet, when I would get online, and I think that's probably where I met maybe Salman and Alva and Valencia and Clint and some of some of those, us old timers who were there when we had to get on the old dial-up bulletin boards, and that was the new frontier. Ooh, the internet. And then we traveled sort of as a group. We migrated to an AOL genealogy forum. And um, things are changing. And that's a good thing. Change is good. Life has changed. It's dynamic. But we need to go where there is more interaction. But we need to hopefully get more who are already in our community, the citizens in the genealogy community, to get more to feel free to interact. I can go to a conference and frequently hear people say, oh, no, I don't I do not do that Facebook. Did you hear about that girl who got killed by some man that she met on Facebook? Well, I hope you're not coming on Facebook looking for some man. But, you know, I'm looking for dead men. I have to confess to that. But I guess the point is that um, many are afraid of social media, and social media is where everything is. I use social media a lot. 
yes, I'm on Facebook, and, you know, it has its, its interesting aspects. There are features of it I like and don't like. I'm on Twitter quite often. And there are individuals whom I have met on Twitter who become very dear people and people whom I respect. The, the methods of communicating are so much easier. We need to be there. And we're not there as much as I would hope that we're there. Mm-hmm. We also, if when we get to that new arena, who do we find but young people? Well, we have another responsibility. We have got to generate interest in the next generation so the next generation of researchers will emerge. They're there. Trust me. I watch a lot of populations. There are so many little universes, I guess I'll say, that are out there. I go to YouTube a lot, and I watch different people who have skill sets in different areas. There's a huge community of young people with talent, trust me, on YouTube. Some of them are into cooking. Some are into fitness. And there are gurus who are out there. I have seen some of these individuals whom I follow and I watch, they started appearing on national media, and their fame has come from their YouTube and their excellent quality videos. I want to see the genealogy community wake up, and not just the African-Americans. I'll say the whole community. We need to be out there, and I don't mean – and I have some videos, and I'm not talking about even the videos that I've done. We need to be out there interacting and talking and sharing, and we have an opportunity. The Internet gives everyone a level playing field. And what is it that we do besides get on the quest to, to find stories like, um, you know, Uncle Cephas or, or whomever that you may find or Peter Clark, your ancestor? We've got stories to tell. And for me, when I'm talking, you and I talk frequently, and one of the things I love hearing, number one, well, there are two things I love hearing, but they come out of the one story. And the two things that I like hearing, number one, is the content. Okay, tell me, what did you find? That's one story. But the other story and the one that really gets me fired up, that makes me want to get busy, when you tell me how you found it. Mm -hmm. When you take me on the journey of what you did to get it, when you tell me of what you did to find the governor's proclamation about your ancestor and how even people were curious, what, a governor's proclamation, and you went and you found it. And I am just as excited as if it was my ancestor, and I'm thrilled to hear the story of the journey. Well, one of the things that I'm finding just by watching these fascinating and talented people that I'm seeing in all these various communities on YouTube is that they're taking you on their journey. They're showing you how they did this. They're showing you how they uh, have have uh, constructed something in this village. They've shown you how they've lost 100 pounds or they've, they've gotten on something else that, that's improved the quality of their life. The way that we form a relationship with people through their stories. And those stories are not always the pedigree choice. And the the hook to getting the young people engaged in genealogy is to share the stories because they're sharing. They're showing us the how-tos with their YouTubes, and they're connecting with each other because they're demonstrating this to us. So, you know, as far as a a new frontier, what you're telling people is don't be afraid of social media. Don't be afraid of it. it. 
utilize social media as a way to learn, as a way to engage, as a way to move forward with your genealogy. But you also, I mean, once I get excited listening to stories, I get excited reading others' blogs. I think Andrea just put something up. And I I love looking at Melvin's blogs. I mean, and so talk about for a minute just the value in sharing your research through blogs, professional journals, and professional presentations. Well, it's very interesting, and I'm glad you mentioned Melvin's name because Melvin is sort of one of these days, um, if you don't know Melvin, Melvin Collier was speaking about one of those well-kept secrets if you don't know him. And he takes, uh, he writes, he's written two books, very well written, and he takes the reader on his journey. But as you know, as well as I know, for example, I'm sure you could write a book about Peter Clark. I could write a book about Sam and Sally or Uncle Cephas or some of the other individuals that I have found. Um, But it's not just the story of my ancestor, because basically the only people who are interested in my ancestors are my close relatives. That's it. And Because my folks are just ordinary people. But there is something else about what Melvin does. Yes, if you want to read the story of this particular line, he'll take you on the journey. But he's giving on his blog, Roots Revealed, he's taking you on little snippets. We all have little chapters. My my direct ancestors on many on multiple lines um, you know, have, have, as I said, lived interesting but still ordinary lives. But my journey to find Uncle Cephas, and, yes, I took a detour with him. He was my great-grandfather's brother, and he just became a mystery man because the only story about him before we ever knew his name, well, you know, he, he shot this man and had to run away to Texas. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, he shot a white man and ran away to Texas. Oh, my goodness, a black man shot a white man in Tennessee. Yes, he had to run away. Well, the other part of the story is that the family was being attacked by Night Riders. This is Giles County. This is the home and birthplace of the Klan. Night Riders were terrorizing families all over Giles County. And my family was one of the victims of these Night Riders. And our great, great great-grandfather was killed in that assault. Uncle Cephas was a Civil War soldier, and he was a marksman. And, yes, he did. He did. Actually, he killed two Klansmen who had attacked the family. So it's like, wait a minute, this was an act of self-defense, but he did have to flee to Texas. Well, when I found him, eventually in Texas, and on a whim, I decided to see if he fought in the Civil War. I found another story about this whole man and his history, how he was taken prisoner of war and escaped. And this is documented in his service record and in his pension file. And it's like, whoa, this man is an unsung hero of tremendous proportion. And, yes, I've told that story. I've blogged about that story. I've told about it and, and, you know, given presentations about it as well, all of which are part of telling the story. But I realized also how much I have gained from listening to other stories and other things that people have done. And sometimes the only place I get that story comes from maybe a YouTube video where someone who's really dynamic, who shared something. There's not enough. 
We need more people telling stories, and I do appreciate uh, when um, our dear friend and colleague, Tony Carrier of Low Country Africana, she encourages us for the, on the National Day of Telling to tell those stories. But you know what? We have a platform every day. Uh, you know, yeah, you have to learn how to operate the camera and not be camera shy, but, um, you know, so what? Tell the story. Story. But you um, also value tell the story. You know, you can tell the story through YouTube. Tell the story through writing, but tell it. Huh. Get it out of it. your draw. Get it off of your table, and share it with someone else. Because every Absolutely. time, every time someone has shared a story, someone else has learned something. Someone yes. else has observed a process, and not to mention the need to document. Once that person has documented where they've gone with the source, yes. that is now a new source for other people to say, wait a minute, I never even thought of that, and I'm just going to take you to the Louisiana, the, the state archives. Going into the mm -hmm. state archives and saying, I want to see the book of governor's proclamations. Well, have any, has any of you all gone to any of your states and looked for the governor's proclamation and found your ancestor in that? You can imagine what's in that book. Well, that's a resource now, Pete. Think about when you're doing your research. But sharing the story, even if you have to just put it on Facebook, and let somebody right. know that you went through a journey. But let's talk a little bit about the journey of going to the ancestral home and also looking at some of the resources that you would recommend to people that they begin the search process. Well, it's very interesting. Um, going to the ancestral home, sometimes, <laughs> pardon me, for those who are maybe there for the first time. I mean, granted, many people have the privilege of living in the same community where their ancestors are from, and that's truly a blessing. But some of us, our families have migrated, and here we are two, three generations, four generations away, and so we realize, okay, I've exhausted things that I, I, I'm doing here four or five states away. It's time that I actually make that journey. And um, thankfully, we can do things. We don't have to just right away uh, uh, pull out and write a letter and, and ask questions, and I would like to be able to have access to this. You can get online and find out what's in various courthouses, what's in various genealogical repositories in the same community, where the cemeteries are located in that community. And, <coughs> pardon me, um, one of the things that um, – it is something that can be an emotional experience. I can recall the very first time that um, – this is probably in the 1980s – I went to southwestern Arkansas with, with the family. We were going to a homecoming of Horatio, Arkansas, and the African-American families that were part of that. So it was multiple families were going to a town homecoming that year. That's where my grandmother was from. She was part of the Bass family. This would have been those who would have been the nieces and nephews of, of Uncle Cephas, the Bass family. I had never been to Horatio. This was my first time visiting intentionally a community where I knew my ancestors had been enslaved, and I knew the names of the enslaved 
people who had lived there and who were buried there. Even getting close to the town, I was surprised at the emotion that I was feeling because now I I, I felt that oh my goodness I, I'm going I'm going way back and I felt like I was stepping back in time. Um, this is apart from going to the courthouse to go and ask to see some marriage records, and people are very friendly. Actually, I was surprised to find them friendly because I don't know what what I had expected. I expected some sort of cold hostility, and I didn't get it. It was yes, ma'am. <laughs> they call me ma'am. That was a surprise, but uh, because we do make assumptions. And sometimes assumptions based on things that maybe happened years ago. But this first time going there was an experience, going to the cemetery where they were buried and feeling their 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 presence, so to speak, and knowing that at one point in time they were enslaved when they lived here. The time they died, which was in the 20th century, they were freed people. But, no, it, it is definitely part – it's part of almost like a pilgrimage, I think you almost have yes, to make. Yes, you know, you're, uh, right. it's, it's, you're talking about a pilgrimage. And and for oh, some, yes. people perhaps don't even think that, oh, I'm going to find anything. But you're right, getting just getting in the town, knowing that your yes. ancestor was in that town. But also yes. – I mean, what other, I mean, the ancestral home, yes, but what resources, if we had to just think of of some of the the resources that you have found helpful to recommend to others, what would those resources be? Well, for you, of course, obviously, if there are um, records, and hopefully I know in many communities in the south, many of the counties were burned. Uh, fortunately, I'm lucky my counties were not burned counties, but still, even if they were burned, well, the, your family lived after the Civil War, so even if Sherman burned the town down, there's still records from the, the 19th century to use. Yes, become familiar with the courthouse and what is there, but even before you get to the courthouse, before you go record hunting, walk through the cemetery. And I also say find, and this is something that I've kind of found as a pattern, uh, if I'm driving to a community and there's still some, some old folks who are there in the town, and I always say this, although I think they're becoming kind of a dying breed, look for a house that has a little black lady sitting on the porch. And I mean that very, very seriously. And then just pull over and just say, hello, good afternoon, ma'am. Can you tell me where the cemetery is? And... um She's probably going to ask you before she tells you where the cemetery is, so who are you looking for? And that woman, even though you might say, I don't know that lady, all my people moved away, she's been here and has never left. And even though you don't know that lady, that lady is actually a person who should be in your circle of elders. And I can give you an example. Uh, Melvin Collier and I overlap a little bit on our family history. Uh, my Amanda Young married Pleasant Bar's great-great-grandfather, uh, married Melvin Collier's great-great-grandfather Pleasant Bar, and that's why they were listed as Bar in 1870 and 1880. Well, he made a trip to Ripley, and they visited the church, and they met the pastor, and the pastor said, you know what, that lady over there, and he pointed, and the lady was sitting on the porch. Uh, you really should talk to her. And he was, and it's funny, he tells the story. He really wasn't anxious to. It was a storm, looked like a storm cloud was approaching. He really wanted to get back and get back to, I believe Memphis, he was still living at the time. But he kind of said, oh, okay. 
So he just went kind of out of courtesy to go and speak to this lady, and he introduced himself and said, yes, my ancestor um, uh, was from this town. Oh, who was that? And he mentioned Pleasant Bar. Oh, my grandpa used to always talk about him. He was like, what? Really? Yes. And he said, of course, who was your grandfather? And um, I'm trying to remember the name now. Uh, Oh, Sam Edgerton. And, of course, Melvin's calling me up. Angela, you never want to met the granddaughter of Sam Edgerton. Now, who's Sam Edgerton? Sam Edgerton was a witness in Amanda Young's Civil War pension file who talked about Oh yes, Pleasant Bar. Oh, he and Amanda. We call her. We call her um, uh, uh, Mama Pleas, and they were married. And he started our church, which still stands, St. Paul's United Methodist Church. And here was a lady who really is an elder. He didn't know her, but he spoke to the lady, and it turns out she knew a little bit about the ancestor who is is the progenitor of Melvin's line because her grandfather knew him and looked up to him because he had founded the church that she still goes to today. And I have found it's been very helpful, as I say, when you get to a town, because you do want to connect with the cemetery for another reason, and I'll mention that in a second. But, yes, find the old lady sitting on the porch who probably sees and knows everybody going up and down the street because more than likely she knows someone who was probably connected to your family. Now, the cemetery itself is a resource. And I particularly like cemeteries, well, for lots of reasons. The first thing I look for when I look at a cemetery, and I'm pretty good at recognizing black cemeteries, and I'm looking, number one, you know, I'm looking for USCT, U.S. Colored Troop Headstone. I'm looking for Civil War soldiers, uh, first of all. But secondly, I'm looking for individuals who were part of the Benevolent Society. And there are throughout the country hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands of benevolent society. These are individuals who were very active in their community. You don't know it because it didn't survive just the oral history. And up until the Depression years, you find these individuals who were part of the Mosaic Templars of America, um, individuals who were part of the, the royal uh, society, the Supreme Royal Society of Friends. And some of these people think, oh, you mean like the Masons and Eastern Star? Not quite. Uh, a little bit different. And some were Masons as well, but they were also Mosaic Templars or they were the Royal Society of Friends or they were with some of the other organizations, the Knights and Daughters of Tabor, and on and on. And it's so fascinating because their histories are talking to you from the cemeteries. And you can find out what they did by just studying these headstones. They tell you so much. This is not even a piece of paper. This is a piece of stone talking to you, saying, here, this is what I did when I was alive. And uh, and when you start to really study these benevolent societies, it will surprise you, in fact. But, oh, my gosh, you know, yeah, I could go on and on and on. able to travel to the various cemeteries, have you found any of these stones on Find a Grave? Oh, yes, absolutely. I surely have. Find a a Grave, it's a wonderful resource. And another way of giving 
of being able to give to the genealogy community is make contributions to find a grave. Mm-hmm. And even if you find a cemetery and say, oh, well, my cemetery is already up there. Well, you know what? You can still make a contribution. Do you have a funeral program with that deceased person whose stone you're looking at? Write the obituary and put some of that information right there on that same pile on find a grave because it is very user-friendly. And we have so many things that we're holding on to. And you already said it. They're sitting in our drawer. They're sitting in our file cabinets. And we have every opportunity to put it out there. You have a video camera in your cell phone. So a lot of people thinking, oh, you have a camera in your cell phone. We have these opportunities to put things out there and to share. How many times do you go to a conference and you always see some people walking around with binders, hoping that somebody's going to ask them about their family, and they're going from session to session with a big fat binder with their family history? You know what? Yeah, I'm glad you got your binder. Hope they're in sheet protectors, your documents. But my goodness, there are too many opportunities to share. Dare to blog. One one of the uh, genealogists, Antoinette Harrell, actually has taken the information out of her home and she's donated her collection. And one collection is at the Amistad Research Center in New Orleans. And another is at Southeastern University. So one of the things when we talk about resources and sharing, that's another place. Not only find a grave, but if you have documents and you have collected these materials, you may want to consider donating. Now let's talk a, a minute about another resource, and I always tell people to follow up at AfroGenius.com. How has AfroGenius.com helped you in your research, and how can it assist others? Well, Afrogenius, as we know, is is the premier site um, for African ancestor research. And I say the premier site because we have a legacy that goes back to the early 1990s, uh, in the early days of the Internet. We go back to those dial-up bulletin boards before there was uh, the website, as we know websites to be. But beyond that, we have communities, and some, and depending upon your personality, can really determine on how you interact with the Afrogenius community. And as an example, we have over 24 message boards and forums where you can post information. We have the African Native American. We have books and authors. We have Caribbean research. We have a a DNA research forum so people can ask their DNA questions. We have family reunion forums. We have a forum, a message board, for researching free people of color. We have a newspaper forum, how to research slave research, how to research unique states, and then we have have states broken down so individuals can actually look at their own individual states and find out what sort of resources are there also. And these are interactive. You put a question, we have a brick wall forum. So if you have a problem, put your problem up there and just see if individuals will come to help you. We have a Canadian research forum. We have a Creole research forum. We have 
So, and of course, the main message board or forum is genealogy and history. But we have a forum for young people. We have a forum for military. It's on and on. That's one tiny portion. All of these forums that I've just mentioned, and I haven't mentioned them all, that's one portion of Afrogenius. Put put, put up your question, have people join a thread, and you can go back to 1997. That is the longest ongoing thread of African-American genealogy posts in the world. That's wow. one. So, so Afrogenius.com is definitely a resource that individuals should check out. Check out all of those, as you mentioned, 24 message boards and all kinds of forums and information to help people. Well, there's something else going on, and I'd like you just to share with us, because I know that you are one of the faculty members at West African American Genealogy. I mean, we're talking about how do we get educated, where can we get educated? Well, a genealogy institutes, you know, an institute is different from a conference. At a conference, and I love conferences, they're lots of fun. But you know what happens at a conference? You go to a workshop or you go to a session, you get the schedule and say, oh, this is good. They got something on DNA. I think I'll sit in on that. Oh, so-and-so's going to be doing something on her family in Texas. She found something really neat on uh, um, some records in Texas. Oh, I might go hear her. Okay. Oh, let's go and listen to this this presentation on African-American newspapers. Now, that's three different workshops, maybe in a day, unrelated to each other. Okay. But that's okay. That's the nature of a conference. An institute is different because within an institute, you take a category, and every class you have, as long as that institute is, is going on, is related to that one category. And I have participated in in um, institutes. I attended the National Institute of Genealogical Research at the National Archives. Uh, in the 1990s and, and may consider doing it again in a few years because things have changed and new record sets have, 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 have come, have surfaced. I've attended the Sanford um, Institute of Genealogical Research as well. Well, Maggie is the Midwestern African American Institute of Workshops within a category. Those categories are called tracks, and that means that within one track, Everything is related to that category. I encourage people to find out more about the Midwest African American Genealogy Institute and to sign up for it. Well, now you did start, and we, we're, we're getting close to the end of the show, uh, the, you have the African Roots Podcast, of which I encourage individuals to listen to. And just tell us, just briefly, why did you start your African Roots Podcast? Well, I started looking around, and I guess this is still part of my my mantra that, you know, well, where are we? And uh, where are we from the African-American community? And I am inspired by a lot of people. I listen to a lot of people. I love Dear Myrtle. I try and, and, and attend things when I can, not as often as I can. But um, I, I'm just so impressed with the things that she does in so many ways. I listen to Lisa Louise Cook, uh, with things that she does with her podcast. I listen to George and Drew, the genealogy guys, and enjoy them and and have just said, oh, this is so cool. But I said, but there are things I want to hear about too. And I realized, well, I don't have to wait for someone to do it. Why don't I do it? Because it wasn't there. 
and that's why I decided, you know what, we have lots of stories to tell. We have a lot of events to share. We have a lot of talent to talk about, books to talk about that help us tell our stories. And what kind of advice would you offer the researcher who's assisting someone else in tracing the African researcher? Well, part of it is to, um, I guess, I like the idea of, of you sharing information that the, the recipient did not know. But the teacher in me comes out, too, because my goal, and first of all, you know you're never finished. You know you're not finished with your own work. I'm not finished with my own work. It is a, for me, genealogy is a journey. It is not a destination. So, therefore, if one is researching for another, you've not given them the complete story. But as you've given them some information perhaps that they did not know, that you also make it a point to teach. Mm -hmm. You teach them how you got that information. Don't just give me a fish. Teach me how to fish. Then you have fed me for a lifetime. And I would say create the genealogist uh, or plant the seeds for the genealogist. It may or may not be the recipient, but it may be someone in that person's family. Teach them, and then you will have also continued the legacy. Fantastic. Others in the community. And I just, you know, I, I, it's a great time to be a genealogist, and I'm very blessed. Yes, it it really is, Angela. It truly is a wonderful time to be a genealogist. Once again, thank you, Angela Walton Raji. Well, Angela, I just want to thank you so much for spending your last Thursday of the year on Blog Talk <laughs> Radio. And, you know, everyone, just remember, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history and research at the National Archives and beyond. Now, Angela, I just want to say we have so many challenges facing us in 2017, and one of the challenges is that we need to continue to share. We need to continue to talk to each other. And so everyone... Have a happy, happy new year, and remember to listen to the African Roots Podcast with Angela Walton Raji and also the Black Pro Gen Live with Nika Soul Smith. Okay, everyone, have a wonderful, wonderful holiday, and thank you so much, Angela, for tuning in and talking to us tonight. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, everyone. Good night, Angela. Good night, Bernice, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too.